Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, final lecture in our series of um, public lectures for the 2009 summer school. Um, I'm, I'm Richard Jackman, and I'm really delighted to be chairing this final lecture of this series. Um, I was been involved in the, with the summer school since since it was started in 1989, and it's really fantastic the way things have developed, and in particular. Uh, the way that these uh, public lectures have developed um, uh, under Michael Cox. Um, <clears throat> you may not know that uh, in addition to Mick's great work in the summer school for which he is Director of Planning and Strategy and I believe welcomed you to the program at the beginning, at the beginning of the session, he's also one of um, Europe's leading experts on, on the United States written a great deal on a range of topics in American foreign policy. I think most notably the development of the United States as an imperialist power, a reluctant imperialist, a, in some sense a liberal imperialist, but nonetheless an imperialist power during the last 10 years. Since then he's gone on to write about the developments and to some extent, the failures of American diplomacy, and also, and perhaps more recently, about the development of a new instrument in foreign policy, so-called soft power, that's culture and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we're really, I'm really pleased to welcome Mick Cox here this evening. Before introducing, the, before introducing starting the lecture, though, I have to mention just a, a couple of, of announcements. The lectures, like the others, should last for about three quarters of an hour with about half an hour for questions. We then very much hope to see you all at a reception, a drinks reception, which will be in the lower level of the new academic building, which is on the corner of Lincoln's Inn Fields. So after the lecture, if you could kindly follow the stewards through the building works, past all the diggers and drummers and things, towards the corner of Lincoln's Inn Fields and enter the building. Uh, if you've got a car, an LSE card, that's all the easier. Otherwise, we'll try and get you in anyway. Down onto the lower ground floor, and there you will find a glass of wine and possibly something to eat as well. Well, our topic for this evening is um, will Barack Obama be able to save the world? And no one better than Mick Cox to tell us. Mick. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for that introduction, Richard. There is, of course, a short answer to your question. The answer is no. Uh, that is the end of the lecture. Um, let me begin with a story. It's a personal story, a little bit of autobiography, a bit of throat clearing, as they say. I'll begin with my story, uh, or at least part of my story. It's uh, 1987. Uh, over 20 years ago, I was a visiting professor in Virginia, a former part of the British Commonwealth, you may remember, what's called a Colonial Williamsburg, for those who know about these things. And it really is colonial. It's a rather strange place, but very nice. And I was teaching at the College of William Mary, so named after our esteemed uh, K 
king and queen, uh, one of whom couldn't speak English, by the way. There you go, typical English uh, monarch. He was very pleasant in the colonial Williamsburg. I settled in very nicely to a Virginian style of life. That is to say, going inside for about four months in the year and turning on the air conditioning. My wife uh, accompanied me on this uh, trip to Colonial Williamsburg. And the local ladies of Virginia, who were very nice, invited uh, my wife to join the local book club. They're very conservative uh, ladies, I have to say. I keep using the word ladies because I think it's a more conservative way of describing uh, they were keen, um, keen to give my wife a social life. And what better way of doing it than joining the local book club? They were even more keen to make sure my wife understood the real meaning of America. And what better way but to get her to have as the first book she studied in this book club, one that dealt with the founding fathers and the making of the American Constitution in the late 18th century. The book, I would have to say, was hardly critical. Indeed, I would say it was a rampant apologia. Indeed, the title of the book said it all. Miracle at Philadelphia, <laughs> 1787. Uh, written by a very interestingly named woman whom I've never met, Catherine Drinker Bowen. <laughs> published 1966. The whole point of the book, of course, which uh, I have to say, I'm not sure it impressed my wife, but the book did sell millions of copies, that the founding fathers were no mere mortals. Uh, they were saviors. They didn't just represent ordinary beings. They represented people who could almost float above uh, the earth. Now, this memory of 1987, my wife being invited along to have a indoctrination process, I'd have to say, about the miracle at Philadelphia and how the damn Brits should have got out a hundred years earlier. Um, this memory of this particular moment came back to me last November 2008 when Barack Obama was uh, elected president of the United States, putting it in its context 21 years after the book club and 200 years since the making of the US Constitution. And I felt here is another American miracle. And in some sense, I suppose it was. Uh, not only was the new president, the new president of a, of a color that would have made him a slave of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, his election also sent a shockwave, a very positive one around the world. Clearly, this was no ordinary election of an ordinary man. And what a man. He not only read books, but also wrote them, unlike his predecessor. <laughs> he also read newspapers. <laughs> unlike the Republican vice presidential candidate, uh, <laughs> the one-time governor from Alaska, whose recent speech of uh, no longer being governor of Alaska left much to be desired. I never knew the dead fish didn't swim upstream. Uh, he was also distinct as an American. I, I, I'm always put down un-American, but he was also distinct as an American. Son of a mixed marriage, 
white mother. He had intimate knowledge of at least two foreign countries, uh, Kenya, from where his father came, and Indonesia. Then there was that name, Barack Hussein Obama, hardly Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> indeed, if you remember at the time coming into the elections, and I remember it very well indeed, some of his enemies on the right said, he may be one of them. <laughs> Certainly not a Christian, which of course he is. So it was in some ways a really quite remarkable uh, election. Uh, one, I have to say here now, I have to make my point clear, uh, by a very remarkable man. And also different groups in the inside and outside the United States also responded with enormous enthusiasm to his election. Uh, most enthusiastic, of course, were those ordinary Americans who voted for him in vast numbers. We were always told as political scientists, and indeed political scientists always told people like yourselves, why didn't Americans vote? Why was voting going down? Well, in fact, it went up dramatically in the 2008 presidential election. And when one started to look at the coalition that... Uh, Barack Obama put together, it was really quite remarkable. 70 million people voted for him. About 53% of the Americans then registered to vote. And what a coalition it was. We were told that white conservative, or at least white workers, chose six-pack, would never vote for a black man. Well, they did in their millions. Blue-collar whites came out through large parts of the United States to vote for him, admittedly in fewer numbers than other particular groups, but they came out nonetheless to vote for him. He couldn't have won it without that vote. Hispanics, we were told, would never vote for the Democrats because Hispanics would be deeply conservative, Catholic, pro-abortion, uh, against abortion, rather. Now, of course, the Hispanics came out and voted for him in very large numbers, largely on socioeconomic grounds and grounds on immigration. African-Americans, of course, voted for him in massive numbers. But it wasn't even what you might call lower socioeconomic groups or ethnics who voted for Barack Obama. If you had a PhD, by definition, you voted for Barack Obama, it seemed. <laughs> I've yet to meet an American PhD who did not vote for Barack Obama. College students, and in particular also new voters, voted for Barack Obama in, in very large numbers. And new voters made an enormous difference to the election. And it was, as I indicated earlier, on the highest turnout in 40 years in any presidential election. We were always told, of course, that Americans did not vote. Well, if 2008 proved anything, it was that they would vote if there was a choice and there were candidates to vote for with real issues to judge by. The other miracle which happened in America last year, of course, was money. Now, it's always been the case, historically speaking, that the uh, grand old party, the Republican Party, uh, was always the party of the rich and that they would always raise more money than the Democrats who, whatever their profoundly good values may have been, were quite useless when it came to raising money. And anyway, we were always told the Republicans had the heart, mind, and indeed their hands in the wallet of Wall Street. Well, not this time, it seems, and not this time. In fact, if you look at the money which was raised, which was vast, enormous, more than any other previous election, Obama raised a shed load of dollars, over 600 million. 
was raised by Barack Obama, quite often in small amounts, in small doses, using the internet. It was, in some senses, the first internet uh, election. And the miracle was he actually raised nearly 250 million more than the Republican Party. Uh, this was another little miracle uh, of last year, how to outspend uh, the Republicans, who have always been very good at raising massive amount of numbers. I'd also say there was something else that happened in the 2008 election, which was often not uh, commented upon. My own, my own reading of this is a purely instinctual one, is that large sections of what I would call the American establishment abandoned the Republican Party, abandoned the Republican Party. Not in all places and not in all, in, in, in all points uh, around the American establishment, but I would say what I would call that central core of the American establishment uh, had abandoned the Republicans. Uh, they now were finding the Republicans uh, either an embarrassment or, or a liability. This was certainly true of the East Coast establishment and certainly of other sections of the American foreign and economic establishment. Why? Bush, I think, by then was a liability, whichever way you cut it. And the American establishment is extremely sensitive to the question of America's credibility in the world. They are, after all, the guardians over the long term of America's position in the world. And I think Bush, it was perceived, and I think clearly had become a liability. Too adventurous. Iraq was not exactly a Vietnam. I think that analogy has been too often drawn. But nonetheless, it was an indication of an adventurous and rather dangerous foreign policy led or at least orchestrated by a number of people in and around Bush, in particular the Vice President Cheney, who were perceived to be too, to use that word, ideological. And then there was, of course, the financial crisis. It happened under his watch. We can't say he was necessarily the cause of it. He certainly didn't understand it, but then <laughs> nor did most bankers. But it certainly happened uh, under his watch. Indeed, I would say this brings me to another aspect of the miracle of November 2008. I was here uh, in London at the LSE at a conference uh, looking at American foreign policy. About 100 people were gathered here from the UK, from Europe, and the United States. And look, inevitably, it was in August, late August, very early September. And we had a round table on who's going to win the upcoming American presidential election. Now, this is late August, remember, early September. And it was very interesting in the discussions. Very interesting in the discussions. Nobody wanted to call it. The general consensus then, late August, too close to call. If anything, if anything, the Republicans uh, in the British International Studies Association who study American foreign policy, and there are at least one of them, um, thought that basically the Republicans had a chance. That's late August, early September. Something clearly happened between late August and late September, late October, early November, to turn the tide very decisively in the democratic direction. And in my opinion, that was the collapse of Lehman Brothers. At a stroke, overnight, suddenly the financial system was not in crisis, something we looked at last week uh, with Professor Gamble when he looked at the financial crisis. 
the financial, crisis, the financial crisis was turning into a meltdown. And I think this played enormously well for the Democrats. Without that crisis, it is still feasible, it is still conceptually possible to think that Barack may not have won the 2008. Why did the crisis and certainly Lehman Brothers collapse have such a consequence? Two, three reasons. One, suddenly the Republicans had the wrong song. Government is the problem. Government is the problem. Altogether, government is the problem. Markets solve everything. Who could believe that as the American government was nationalizing banks, mortgage companies, and all the rest? Market fundamentalism was now a dead duck. And the Republicans were the owner of this dead duck. They possessed it, they owned it, and the smell was all over them. Secondly, the Republicans, in a situation where ordinary Americans were worrying about jobs, nobody cared two hoots about culture wars any longer. You know, Bush had been extremely assiduous, clever even, politically, and certainly his advisor, Karl Rove, was especially acute at exploiting what I call culture wars, the culture issue. Are you in favor of gay marriage? What about abortion? What about patriotism? What about the flag and all the rest of it? Nobody, I think, when the unemployment levels were beginning to rise and you could focus on the economy, stupid, to use an old Clinton phrase, was going to be too interested whether you were gay, straight, green, blue, or whatever. I think also what the, the economic crisis did, and it worked to Barack advantage is take away national security from the Republicans. They couldn't use it any longer. If they could ever have used it, and Bush again was very, very strategic and clever in using national security in 2004, you could no longer use that issue in 2008 any longer, in the midst of a financial uh, hurricane, in, in, in the face of this tsunami. There were other reasons why foreign policy could no longer be exploited to, to Republican advantage, including, of course, Iraq, by definition. But the, the centrality of economics came back into the election to trump national security, to trump culture, and also to reveal the Republicans in all their ideological nakedness. This, I think, was critical. And again, going back to my, my conference here, back last year, just before the elections. It was then too close to call. By November, Barack won something near, not exactly, but near to a landslide. I think there were other reasons why he was elected, and we can discuss that in the Q&A, but I do think that was the crucial turning point in, late, uh, in, in, in September uh, 2008. I, I've actually written a paper called The Two Septembers, which tries to compare and contrast the crisis produced by September the 11th, 2001, and September the 15th, 2008, between, that, between those two. One helped Bush, and the other one, in the end, helped uh, Barack Obama into office. Not only was the American response uh, enthusiastic, at least amongst those who voted for Barack Obama, <laughs> obviously not amongst those who didn't, um, and not only do I think large sects of the American establishment went uh, for Barack for reasons I've already indicated, but the global response to the election was even more extraordinary. Barack Obama was the world's choice. Not that we had a vote, 
it seemed, did anybody but the Republicans after Bush. Certainly anybody but that oldie McCain and Sarah Palin. Indeed, I remember a number of discussions here saying, McCain is 72. I thought, well, that's okay. He looks fit enough. But just let's imagine a situation where poor, poor old McCain keels over or goes gaga. The vice president becomes president. Who's the vice president? Fine. Vote Democrat. Sarah Palin turned from somebody who provided bounce for the Republican Party immediately after the convention to somebody who deeply worried American centrists and certainly worried the rest of the world, fairly or unfairly. But around the world, both before, during, and just after the election, the response to the Barack Obama victory was just extraordinary. The BBC did a poll in Africa. Yes, Barack Obama would have been elected in every African country if he had stood. In Nigeria, he would have got 94% of the vote. <laughs> in Kenya, 97. On and on it went. In large numbers of countries in Asia, although not every Asian was as anti-Bush as some Europeans, and it's certainly true in China and India, Bush did not excite the same degree of animosity for all sorts of interesting reasons. Nonetheless, there was a welcome there. Latin America, too. Europe... Well, as you know, in Western Europe, people no longer believe in God. But they certainly prayed for Barack Obama's election <laughs> on November the 4th last year. You've never seen so many people on their knees in Houghton Street from the LSE praying for Barack Obama to be elected. Europe went 100% Barack Obama mania. Even in Britain, or especially in Britain, this, this took on a particularly peculiar form. As you know, traditionally and historically, the Labour Party is broadly speaking like, generally like the Democrats for all sorts of reasons, except Tony Blair, who likes everybody, as long as they're rich. <laughs> and of course, in general terms, the Tory Party has always, generally speaking, preferred the Republicans. Not this time, oh no. Even the Conservative Party in this country was for Barack Obama. Tories for Obama. This was the slogan. In fact, the only three groups of people or states I can find who had very grave reservations, and possibly still do, but maybe even there, was Israel, because they worried uh, that uh, Barack Obama would take a tougher line against them, which has turned out to be the case. And they, of course, they'd, Israel had done very well under George Bush, um, so to speak. Uh, Al-Qaeda didn't quite like him either. In fact, they ran a series of uh, statements on their blog sites, I noticed, even making some fairly racial, racially charged attacks upon him. And, and even the Russians at first uh, sent out a pretty unpleasant uh, statement about Barack. But that was about it. That aside, the hopes ran high. The expectations were great. In foreign policy, Barack would deliver peace, at least to Iraq, by getting American troops out within some space of time. He would get rid of torture, and he would get rid of Guantanamo. Um, on economic policy, the new team had a pretty open recognition that government was not the problem. In other words, it was the end of a period of market fundamentalism. If you like, almost Keynesians, even of a, of a lower level, were now back in charge of the most important country in the world. And more generally, it was believed, and I think this has turned out to be the case, that America's standing in the world would be restored, given that it had sunk so low in many countries in the world 
in the, in the eight years of the presidency of G.W. Bush. That, as they say, was then. Uh, where are we now nine months on? Well, clearly, uh, the voices of support are a little less enthusiastic. The critics, as you can see, are more numerous. There is a sense of unease, even amongst his more uncritical of supporters. And every day there are signs of the mood, at least in the United States and elsewhere, having changed. At home, his enormously high approval ratings last November, or indeed in early January when he was inaugurated in sub-zero temperatures, uh, those approval ratings have slipped, there's no doubt. If you believe opinion polls, they've slipped from somewhere way above 70 down towards the 50 mark. And even in the Western liberal press, there has been a few mutterings. Now, why, is this, why has it happened? And what does it mean? And does this bring us back to the question of savior, what he seemed to be back then, or has he turned into a classic lame duck? Well, there's a number of reasons for this, uh, this situation uh, of, of what you might call greater realism or indeed a mood of, of lesser and lesser enthusiasm, even if it's not become uh, turned into a tide of criticism. Far from it. I don't think we need to exaggerate how far things have gone against him over the last nine months. Firstly, and, the, and this is a problem, and maybe it's outside of his control, although he's tried to do quite a lot on this, the American economy does continue to slide downwards in terms of jobs. Um, now, it is true, as we know this famous phrase, there are green shoots. This, this is a phrase, by the way, that ought to be eliminated from the English language at the moment, because everybody's finding green shoots, under beds, in beds, in gardens, and on the stock exchange. It is certainly the case that equities have gone up quite considerably since March, but the trend downwards in the real economy, as opposed to bankers' uh, bonuses. The trend downwards in the real economy continues in the US as much as anywhere else in the world. Conservative estimates say half a million jobs per, annum, uh, per month are being lost, possibly up to three quarters of a million. Official employment figures in the states tell us that unemployment, using the official statistics, is rising close to 10%. And that doesn't even begin to take account of the numbers of people on short-time working who are doing three-day weeks, who are kind of getting by in other ways. And there's also the massaging of unemployment figures all the time officially. So it could well be that in real, if you had a real measurement of unemployment, we could be looking at something like 15% uh, levels of unemployment. The simple reality is that in spite of the bailouts, in spite of the massive injections, in spite of quantitative easing, in spite of getting interest rates virtually down to zero over the last, uh, began under Bush and has continued since, there seems at the moment no end in sight to the slide in, in real employment and, and real production, real investment in the United States. Perhaps the slide is going slower. Perhaps the decrease in economic activity is slowing down. We hear all that as well, but nonetheless, there it is. In nine months, he has not been able to turn around the American economy and push it in a new, entirely new direction. That is a simple fact. And under those circumstances, people would begin to ask questions about his capacities. And indeed, therefore, that in part explains the reduction in his approval ratings. 
Like Bill Clinton, of course, uh, Barack Obama came into office with a, a dedicated uh, idea of reforming the American healthcare system. As you know, two things, in fact, eroded support for Bill Clinton in 1992 and 1993 and four. One was the issue of gays in the military, uh, which did an enormous amount of damage. And the other thing, of course, which did enormous damage to Bill Clinton in the first few months, of course, was the whole question of health care reform, uh, which he devolved over to his, uh, no doubt, very uh, capable wife, but she managed to produce kind of a 900-page document on it, which nobody could read, nobody understood, he, least of all the people who had to try and take it through Congress, and it sunk him, and, and I think probably damaged his presidency for the next period of time. Now, Barack has come in, Barack Obama has come in with a reform program on many issues, but healthcare is at the heart of that. And as we have seen over the last few weeks, indeed over the last few days, the, mo the moment or the movement forward on healthcare reform has been pushed into the sidings. It's not yet sunk by any stretch of the imagination, because I do think there's a lot of popular support for this in the United States. After all, 40 million Americans have no insurance, and therefore there is a powerful surge of support for this, but there are powerful factors fighting back against health care reform. One of the most important arguments it is used by British American doctors against having health care reform in the United States, of course, is the British National Health Service, which is a kind of interesting argument about, about what, what could go badly wrong if socialism ever took over the United States. You could have a British National Health Service. Dear, dear. Good, goodness sake. In addition to these issues of the economy and the reform program on health, there is the issue of foreign policy. I'll talk more about this in a moment. There's been a big welcome around the world, and I think broadly speaking in the United States, uh, for what one might define as a less confrontational American foreign policy. One that just doesn't think that regime change is a good idea, even if the regime in question doesn't want to be changed or its people don't like the idea. So there's been a big welcome for a less confrontational uh, foreign policy. But as uh, some of his critics, um, and not just right-wing ones and conservative ones, or John Bolton, um, have pointed out, it is one thing to be less confrontational on foreign policy and not to use the kind of tough-minded rhetoric that was employed by GW, particularly in his first term of office. It's another thing to believe that diplomacy alone and holding out the hand of friendship to your enemies will solve the problem. And I would say, as somebody who, broadly speaking, has supported Barack Obama's policies on Iran, for instance, that I think his handling of recent events in Iran was less than deft. When people were being murdered and killed on the streets of Tehran, when people were being thrown into prison and tortured and dying in prison after the... After the electoral fiasco which has brought a Holocaust denier into office yet again in the shape of Mr. Ahmadinejad, President Ahmadinejad as I think he prefers to be called, but not by me. For Barack to say, or for President Obama to say, this is really an internal issue at first. We will deal with the regime as the regime because there's a higher question involved here, namely the question of dealing with nuclear weapons. You can see the realism, you understand what he's getting at. But it doesn't just send out exactly the right message. How you get that message across, you know, by balancing both your realistic needs to deal with the regime that exists, but at the same time send out the message of support to those who are being beaten up and killed on the streets of Tehran is a difficult one. 
but I think at times he didn't quite get that balance right. He sounded, frankly, too much like a realist in order to create distance between himself and George Bush, and he may have handled that question with a little less deafness uh, than, uh, than was desirable. Equally, though, I think there's been a big welcome for his attempt to reset the button on foreign policy relations with Russia. Many do ask the question, and it's a tough question. Again, if international relations was easy, uh, you know, or didn't have all these problems, he wouldn't be bothering with it. Will this be at the expense of Eastern Europe, of Central Europe, of Poland, and will it be at the expense of human rights abuses within Russia itself? And the obvious fact that Putin himself is now clearly uh, overtly anti-Western. So again, yes, we want him to do more diplomacy. Yes, we do want him to hold out the hand to the unclenched fist of previous enemies or competitors like Iran as enemy or uh, increasingly aggressive competitors like Russia, but at what cost? And again, I think there are answers which have still not been provided. And finally, of course, most recently, and maybe this is symptomatic of the situation that Barack finds himself in at the moment, Barack Obama finds himself in at the moment, even on the question of race in the United States. According to many people, at least some of, even some of his strongest supporters, he has slipped up. Now, as you remember, this concerns the, the recent event in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of Harvard. Um, as you know, one of the, most, one of the foremost uh, African-American academics came home to his house, obviously, to his own home, couldn't get in, asked a neighbor to help get him in. He got in, finally got in, was unpacking his case. Uh, a policeman turned up, uh, unfortunately a white one, as it turned out. In that sense, race still matters a lot, particularly when it involves policing and racial profiling. Obviously, words were exchanged in this gentleman's uh, front room. Uh, the white policeman or the policeman then arrested the man in his own home, even knowing that this was his own home. First time, well, people can be arrested in their own home, of course, but not for being in their own home. Um, I suppose, unless they haven't paid the rent. But clearly this uh, leading African-American academic had paid the rent and was a proper mortgage holder. So off he was, off he was carted to, to, the, to, the, to the Nick downtown for a few hours. At a, then at a press conference, uh, Barack Obama was asked the question, what did he think? Now, what he should have said as a good pragmatic president of the United States, representing all races, all classes, all ethnicities, was, well, clearly a mistake has been made, misunderstanding, lack of communication, blah, 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 on the one hand, but on the other, you know. But, of course, Barack Obama did effectively what I think was not entirely wrong, which was actually to shoot from the hip say that the Cambridge Police Department had acted stupidly, which it seems to me on the surface of it they did, and he then mentioned racial profiling by the police and said there is a long history of this. Now, neither statement, it seemed to me, was entirely untrue. It seemed to me that the Cambridge Police Department had acted in some stupidity from afar. It looked to me like that. And certainly there is a question of a deep problematic relationship between white police officers and members of ethnic communities in the United States. But as president, who was elected on a non-racial platform, in a sense as a non-black president, he should not have said it. That's the point. Bill Cosby, who's no, who's no, who's no great critic, as you know, but one of the fam very famous African-Americans, was not impressed, nor was anybody else. 
Now, of course, they've all sat down in the White House garden, drank a few bottles of beer. Well, actually, one bottle of beer, I noticed. They've, they've exchanged a few pretzels. Nobody said sorry, and they've all gone home. But nonetheless, it is, and I've been listening to this, and I was quite surprised that this would have such an effect. But nonetheless, in the short term, it has had some kind of consequence about his ability to handle these things. So nine months on, after the miracle in Washington of November last year, we are in a kind of different situation, it would seem. The economy continues to slide. Healthcare is in trouble. Some doubts about his handling of one or two foreign policy issues, particularly Iran. And on this domestic issue on erase, uh, it looks as if he may have slipped up. Indeed, even some of his ideological enemies on both sides of the debate are beginning to hover like vultures, I've noticed. I've been looking kind of through what the left say about Barack Obama. And what the left say about him is Barack Obama is not left wing enough. Basically, he needs to go a bit further. Maybe, I don't know, execute a few bankers. I'm not sure. Do, some, do something dramatic. Put in some more money. Be more of a Keynesian. Stop kind of appeasing the rich. That's the kind of argument the left would make, inevitably. Uh, he needs to go further. He's been, he's been like a warmed-up G.W. Bush, if you can imagine such a thing. And so he's given too many concessions. So the left is beginning to hover. The same left who supported him back in November, and they've been, in some sense, it's ideologically important for him. They are beginning to kind of say that he's not going far enough. And of course, those on the right who hate him basically think he's a kind of a Bolshevik, uh, a kind of who's gradually taking over the United States, uh, taking America down the slippery road that is likely to lead to a weakening of America abroad, and a kind of socialist-style government uh, at home. Now, what are we to make of all this, kind of trying to draw all this together between the great miracle in November and the situation we confront now? I have a number of uh, responses to this, to this conundrum of, of the, or the movement or the, sh the, the, re the recalibration of the debate about, about Barack Obama. Firstly, I think at least and this is a very, I think, a really important point. I think at least we're back in the real world. I don't think many people were actually in the real world last November. They thought they had elected somebody who combined the purity of Mother Teresa with the kind of politics of Mahatma Gandhi and hoped that this miracle worker would act like Mother Teresa and Mahatma Gandhi in the White House. I think this was kind of illusory from day one. This was illusory from day one. So in some ways, I'm rather pleased that we've gone away from the notion of Barack Obama as world savior. Uh, we are back in the real world. Uh, it seems that some people have a desperate need to have miracle workers. Not just social workers, but miracle workers. And it may be that some people are so desperate they need somebody to walk on water. Indeed, it was often rumored that Barack did. <laughs> but he doesn't. And if we're now nine months on with a bit more maturity about the discussion, about the problems facing us all, and the fact that they can't be solved by one man, then I think this is no, no bad thing uh, at all. The, the second point I'd make is a, is a kind of think about time. Now, if I'd been making a speech about G.W. Bush, not, you have, by now may have gathered not my favorite topic, but if I'd, for instance, stood up here, let's just say on this day, the 3rd of August, uh, 
2001 and tried to make an assessment of the presidency of G.W. Bush since he was selected into office, <laughs> sorry about that, in January 2001 after the uh, interesting goings-on in Florida. You remember the hanging chat? Um, now, if I'd made any kind of assessment about, uh, about his presidency in August, or even very early September, I, I, it would have been completely bypassed by the events of September the 11th. Now, what I mean by that is it's simply too soon to tell. You know, everybody wants the first 100 days. That was always the mythology of John F. Kennedy. It's always the first 100 days. Well, okay, I mean, that's the kind of Kennedy myth. And in fact, in the end, the most important moment for John F. Kennedy as president didn't come in the first 100 days at all. It came in October 1961 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Many, many, many more days than 100 after his original election. To put it quite simply, it's too soon to make any real assessment you know, of, of what the achievements or the non-achievements or where he is or where his position in the pollings uh, actually lie. I would, however, say, and, and here, here we go into the kind of more positive stuff, I think it's important to stress, having said that, uh, what he has achieved. The first thing, he, what he has achieved, is not to have done anything stupid. This, to me, is important. Um, I know this may sound like a typical British thing to say. You know, what's his great achievement? Not being dumb. You know, what's his great foreign policy achievement? Not trying to whack another Arab state. You know, okay, um, but doing nothing sometimes is a good policy. Um, doing too much can sometimes be the worst thing to do, to respond. And these, I think we've seen this kind of dilemmas over Iran. It would have been very easy for him, going back on my trail on this one, to have taken a very strong stand on Iran. And maybe from a moral and, you know, from my heart's point of view, I would have liked that. The reality is, however, there's a large issue over Iran called nuclear weapons, and whether or not this, a regime or a leadership within Iran will get nuclear weapons. He's still left the door open for that. And indeed, we may have to swallow a lot of very tough stuff if we're going to have a new, calibrated American foreign policy for the new world. We may have to see some pretty tough, tough reassessments over Afghanistan and on Pakistan. We are not going to see the promotion of democracy in many countries around the world in terms of making a more pragmatic and maybe a more realistic foreign policy achievable. So he hasn't done anything particularly bad. I would, however, say one thing, and I think this is an important thing. He has succeeded, and this is a really quite remarkable turnaround, in making America liked again around the world. As I always say, my American students can now stop pretending to be Canadians <laughs> when abroad. This, now, you may not think this is a great step forward in terms of American foreign policy, but when I had my, I exaggerate somewhat for, for rhetorical effect, as you're bound to think I am. Most, most of what I've said so far has been made up anyway. But there was the, what I call the Canadian effect, you know. Can I borrow your maple leaf? And again, if we look at recent, recent Pew uh, assessments, uh, America is now liked again around the world. Now, not in all countries. I mean, uh, some parts of the Muslim world still have major reservations. I'm sure the Palestinians of um, 
of Gaza still have major reservations about any American president, not surprisingly. Uh, I'm, I'm sure bin Laden would not vote for Barack Obama. Um, but I will always take one country as kind of a swing country, and this is Germany. Under, uh, Germany, which has historically been a, a kind of you know, pro-American country, if I might put it in two simple terms, but I think that's been the case, given Germany, German-American relations after the Cold, during the Cold War in spite of the 1960s, unlike France, of course, which has been systemically kind of anti-American until, until the new man took over. What's his name? You know, Sarko. And, uh, um, but Germany's the swing state in all this. Germany is the swing state in this. And if you actually look at the opinion polls in most of Germany during the Bush period, you know, it just went down and down and down and down, down to about mid-30s, which, you know, for the largest democracy in Europe, particularly one which had actually been, in, in historic terms, in a sense, more likely to be pro-American than, say, France. This was remarkable. Now it's swung right up again. It's swung right up again. And throughout Europe, it, is, it has clearly turned public opinion towards the United States. In this sense, this kind of old argument of je suis l'État, l'État c'est moi, in a sense, turns out to be true. I am the state, the state is me. In a sense, the personalization of politics in the world meant that the personality of Bush brought the United States down and the personality and figure and intellect of somebody like Barack, at least in the short term, has brought it up again. And this is no great achievement. This is a great achievement. Richard mentioned earlier on the notion of soft power. Soft power isn't just soft and stupid. It means, therefore, people are likely to follow. It means there's a kind of sense of a moral purpose which people want to go for. There's a kind of sense of admiration. As we all know, all great powers depend upon a lot of hard power, military. They depend upon a lot of economic power, and they depend upon soft power. And by restoring that soft power for the time being, it makes a big difference. How long it will last, we don't know. It is too soon to tell. But he's done a really quite remarkable job. I would certainly increase his pay tomorrow. Um, he has also opened up... Um, and people can be cynical about this, I suppose, a, 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 an important dialogue with what is generically referred to, although very imprecisely known as the Muslim world. Um, I don't often like presidential speeches. Um, I often don't like my own speeches, would you be surprised to hear? But I have to say that the speech that Barack made in Cairo was an excellent speech. It was well judged, it was sensitive, it was respectful, it reached out a genuine hand, it engaged with ideas, and clearly made the message as clear as any message could ever be, that the United States on the one side and the larger Muslim world on the other are not fundamentally enemies. Now, of course, GW could always have said, well, I said that too, <laughs> which is true. I mean, he only used the word crusade once, but everybody remembered it. That was, always the, that was always the trouble with poor George. And Barack made other important announcements and statements in, uh, in, Tur in Turkey, of course, uh, to the Turkish parliament. He made another important speech on the relationship between the larger Muslim world and the United States. He also promised Turkey that it could join the European Union, which was an interesting, <laughs> interesting diplomatic gaffe on his part given I think that the last time I looked the United States was not a member of the European Union. <laughs> it's a bit like if the, Mr. Barroso went to Mexico City and offered Mexico City 
membership of the United States <laughs> once Brussels had got round to thinking about it. But I do think, moving away from the kind of trivial side of this, but it's been important. I, 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 it is not gonna, it's not going to change facts on the ground. It won't change settlements in the West Bank. It won't change occupation. It won't change the sense of injustice felt by the majority of Palestinians. It won't change the way many Muslims feel about the United States or about the West in general. It isn't going to perform miracles overnight, but it is a sense of smart diplomacy. It is a sense of smart diplomacy. Uh, no amount of diplomacy will change things forever, nor can it affect things overnight. But a lot of smart diplomacy can, over the long term, have an impact. And the more smart the American president, in, then at least for me, I feel a good deal more confident about the future direction of the USA. I'd also put it in another way, and this is not a hope offensive to, to American friends in the audience, it's not meant to be, and it certainly isn't. Um, George W. Bush, for all of his strengths, and there were some, um, and for all of his capacities as a genuine American patriot, which he clearly was, and given the enormous curved ball he was thrown on 9-11. I just don't know, frankly, how any American president would have dealt with that easily. It was not. This was a crisis of huge proportion. So it's easy to stand back, as we've all done, around dinner tables and all the rest, to make snides about George W. Bush's lack of English and all the rest. There is no, Amer there's no word in French for entrepreneur, that kind of thing, you know. The... And he made gaffe after gaffe. There's nothing wrong with trade, except you have to do it with foreigners and that sort of thing. And then, but the, the, that wasn't the problem for me. I mean, after all, academics as politicians are generally useless, in my opinion. You know, one of the, you know, some of the great intellectuals who have pretended to be American presidents have not always been such great, great presidents. Be a politician is something specific. You know, some people have it and some don't. And most academics, frankly, I wouldn't. I wouldn't vote for. I certainly wouldn't vote for Richard, and I'm sure, <laughs> sure he wouldn't vote for me after this particular lecture this evening. But the trouble was, and this was the trouble, it wasn't just the trouble of Bush, maybe it was. Um, it created an image of the United States. It created a certain image of the United States. Torture, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, uh, all, of, all the negative sides of America came and bubbled up to the top of the, to the surface, particularly in the first four years of the Bush presidency. Bush made a very easy enemy for his enemies. Uh, bin Laden later on said, I couldn't have had a better enemy. He actually said that. Osama bin Laden actually said, I couldn't have had a better enemy. You know, he invaded Iraq, thank you. You know, he used the word crusader, admittedly only once. He's uncritically supportive of Israel, whatever Israel does. You know, he was our best enemy. We couldn't have chosen a better enemy from, the, from our point of view. That's the point he was making. You know, Nizam bin Laden, you know, may be a totalitarian thug. On the other hand, he's not a strategic idiot. He's still around and he's still doing major damage around the world to a number of countries and a number of societies. And it reminds me of something that what Barack has managed to do, at least in, in the short term, is take away the image of the ugly American. I might use that phrase from the, from the Graham Greene novel. The kind of sense of America the bad, he's transformed it and translated it into something far more positive. It's therefore very difficult, therefore, to have him as enemy. 
And indeed, I think this is quite conscious on, on, on his part to, to, to do this. And I think there are other things where I think Barack Obama you know, deserves, deserves praise. Global warming, whether he can translate the good words and all the fine scientists into genuine policies, we shall see. But at least he accepts it. He believes that Charles Darwin may be right. Um, unlike George W. Bush. Um, he seems to be in favor of science. Um, he has taken some very positive moves, say, on Cuba and Latin America. These are all positive things and should not be, should not be uh, dismissed out of hand. And also, let us be frank, and I know this is a controversial point to make. I'm, as a supporter of the State of Israel, I'll nonetheless make it. He is the first president for a long time, at least to raise doubts, if not about America's support for the State of Israel and its continued existence, at least to begin to raise questions about the policies of the Israeli government. And this takes, I think, a lot of political guts in the American political scene, which I know pretty, pretty well. So, yes, it is too soon to tell. Um, nonetheless, I think he has not made any great mistakes. And, and secondly, I think he has done a number of things which are positive. I'll end on, however, two, two larger questions, and then I'll sit down and shut up, and you can throw anything you like at me as long as it is money. Um, <laughs> I think these are the two larger questions I want to raise, in a sense, to depersonalize the debate, to depersonalize the debates. Because so far, that's what I've focused in on, because that was the lecture title I was given, or I made up, um, rather. I, I think the first thing I'd say is, is this, that when uh, Senator Obama became president, if, if one kind of adds up all the problems that the US, and indeed the West and the world more generally faced, the range of problems when he took over was just enormous. Some of the making of George W. Bush, some caused by the enemies of the Western democracies such as Al-Qaeda, some to do with failed states, which we were discussing in my seminar this afternoon, some to do with ongoing conflicts with states, which have, and these conflicts have been around for a long time, much to do with the emergence of new great powers emerging onto the scene, such as China, much to do with the unresolved problem of proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Not every problem the United States faces is caused by George W. Bush. Many of the problems that Barack Obama has con confronted when he took over the office finally in January of this year are huge. So we've got to judge the achievement set alongside the huge range of problems that are there, compounded by the greatest global economic crisis we have seen since the 1930s. This is objectively speaking, to use that old phrase, a, a conjuncture and a structure, a set of problems, which no other president has had to confront. Maybe Harry Truman back in 1945 when he took over from FDR, confronting the onset of the Cold War, but even then, he could confront the onset of the Cold War with some degree of confidence about American power and the alliances it could construct together. And in a situation where the global economy was at the beginning of a long boom, not in the midst of a, of a fundamental downturn and crisis. So perhaps we need to depersonalize it and move it on to the structural problems, which brings me to my second point on this, and, and I will conclude on this note. There seems to me a larger question about the United States here. <laughs> When G.W. Bush took over the, the office, I think if he looked at the, the world, as indeed he obviously did, and he had many intelligence supporters and 
advisors around him. He was, he was by, by no means an uninformed president, and he certainly got some advice, maybe some very bad advice, but he knew what the world was like. I think when Bush took over office, if, if I might put myself in his in his position just for one second, I think he looked at the world and what he saw was an America which had no limits. An America without limits. It's kind of exceptionally rosy, optimistic vision of America in the world. You know, what I'd call almost, if I'm without sounding patronizing, a rather typically American view of the world. There are it's almost that John F. Kennedy view. You remember when John F. Kennedy became president? You know, there is nothing we we can, there's anything we can do, we can do it. There's no enemy we can fight, enemies and all the friends and all the rest. A terrific optimism about what America was capable of. And I think it was that optimism, and indeed the hubris, as, as I think the Greeks would call it, which ultimately led to, the, to, 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 to Iraq. A kind of deep sense of confidence about what America was capable of doing. If I would say, what, what is Barack Obama's vision? It is of a, it's, it, it's a much less optimistic perspective. I think it's a recognition of the limits of American power. It's a recognition that America can't achieve anything by itself. It has to work with others. That the problems it confronts are huge. There are no simple ideological answers to these problems. Democracy promotion, regime change. All that simplified stuff of the earlier eight years of the first part of the 21st century will no longer do. In other words, I think what Barack Obama is recognizing is the world as it really is. It's tough. It places limits on American power. And what America can and cannot do in that world is limited by that world. All I could say at the end of the day, however, that I'm certainly pleased that he's the president of the United States than the alternative that was presented last November. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, well, thank you very much. Well, we have about a quarter of an hour or so for questions. If you want to give a question, a raised question, could you first be sure you have a microphone in your, in your hand so that we can hear what the question is? The, there are people around with microphones. Who, could, who would like to make the first question? Yeah, yeah right down here. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Cox. Building on... Could, could those of you who have to leave not talk at the same time, please? Could you leave quietly? In other words. <laughs> <laughs> Some people can understand what I say. I know. <laughs> I try and avoid that situation too often. All right, yeah. Building on your last statement about the limits of American power that perhaps Barack Obama recognizes, yeah. is that, um, do you think then that there's another interpretation of what happened with Iran when the election happened in that if he had come out strongly on a human rights bent and said, this is terrible, we have to do this, that he wouldn't have just played into the Ahmadinejad regime, which is wanted the obvious American foil there, and when he didn't find it, started looking around for... Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe most people didn't hear that question because the noise people going out. The question was really about the limits of American power and the way, if, if I interpret you correctly, the way Barack uh, Obama played the Iran election crisis and whether or not this not only recognized limits but was probably maybe the best policy to pursue insofar as it didn't play into Ahmadinejad's hands. 
uh, uh, yes, yes, and yes, actually. I mean, Ahmadinejad thrives on what is, he perceives as Western aggression. He thrives on what he perceives to be U.S. unconditional opposition to the Islamic Republic. He thrives on the old Stalinist notion that the best thing you can have is a horrible enemy. And the, best, and the worst thing you can have is an enemy which extends a hand of friendship at least. So I think you know, the advice going to President Obama was clearly one about don't intervene into the internal affairs of Iran if you can jolly well help it because this will immediately be picked up on by the Iranian regime to delegitimize the opposition. And the opposition will be portrayed, as it has been so often in the Middle East and indeed in old Stalinist Russia, and there's much Stalinism about this Iranian regime. Ahmadinejad has learned a lot from J.V. Stalin on this issue. Exploit the enmity of the West in order to legitimize your regime at home better than to isolate and then repress your opposition. And I think he didn't fall into what I would call Ahmadinejad's trap. The problem was, as you well know, and I made the point, but not as strongly as others have made it, and I don't want to push the point too hard, it did therefore place Barack Obama in a situation of appearing to be not in support of the reformist and the oppositionist on the street who are being killed and murdered and who are now in prison suffering. And it's a real dilemma to which there is actually, let's be perfectly honest, no easy answer. I think, however, on balance, he played it correctly because we still have to deal with that regime as well because they are moving towards trying to get nuclear weapons. Thank you, yes. Um, yeah, in the middle. You so. can just shout if you like. Yeah, I can hear you, yeah, can hear you very well, can, yeah. But the, but the people up there maybe can't. Oh, okay. oh don't worry about them. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Those that are there. Uh, yeah, no, I don't, yeah. Yes, I was, I was living in California during the Democratic primaries in California, mm. and I was in the, in the UK during the election, and uh, as you described, um, the enthusiasm there, I was completely inspired by the enthusiasm for the American political scene. Mm. But as our own general election comes up, I, oh. like uh, most British people, am fairly depressed about the British political scene. Yes. And I wonder whether you thought that the enthusiasm that we saw was a specific Obama effect localized to that time and place, or whether we can take some lessons about how to reinvigorate our own uh, political scene. Good question. Uh, British politics is, of course, massively depressing. Um, I mean, I'm no great hater of Gordon Brown. In fact, I'm going to actually vote for the Labour Party this time around. I voted for the Liberals last time on the grounds that they actually opposed the Iraq War. I'm now going to vote for the Labour Party because the Tories have seemed, seemed to have lost their brains on the grounds of public spending. You know, I work in a university. Am I going to vote for a... Uh, for a party which wants to even slash public spending. It's like a turkey voting for Christmas. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to vote Labour. But I have to say, with no great enthusiasm. Um, and if we look, I mean, I always, you know, let's look around the European political scene. I mean, I mean OK, there's some very capable guys around. I've got a bit of, I've got a, bit of a soft spot for Zapatero. Uh, brr, brr, the French guy, I kind of, you know, well, he's okay. Uh, she's better. Um, <laughs> do I know the name of the Norwegian Prime Minister with all due respect to our Norwegian friends? Uh, you know, I think there's a kind of real lack of talent, frankly, in the, in the European political class overall. So it's not just a p British political problem. And this is what I think, again, is quite remarkable about this election in the United States. I mean, when are we going to have the first black prime minister in this country? 
when are we going to have the first black president of France? You know, but the answer is at the moment, well, wait, just let's wait another 400 years, it seems, you know. So for all these European kind of guys who are kind of, you know, knocking the United States as being this, that, and the other when Bush was in office, you know, this is a great wake-up call to the failures of our own and limits of our own political processes, you know. Um, this, is, no, this is a remarkable turnaround. You know, there we were saying this was a terrible country, you know, full of people who couldn't, you know, didn't have passports, didn't know the capital of Pakistan, <laughs> even the president didn't know the president. Um, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly we have this remarkable political upsurge. As you say, great enthusiasm. And I wasn't trying to be cynical from, the, from here, you know. I mean, I, was, I really I did feel that very much. Um, it also says something not just about Barack Obama, and it also says something about the United States, and you can't get away from it. I mean, you know, whatever the limits of American power, whether it's in decline, all of its faults, and, you know, all my American students know the faults of the United States much better than I do. You know, in the last analysis, we will, in the end, look to the United States, not to solve all our problems, but at least for leadership. That, I mean, you know, that still remains part of the world we live in. You know, I mean, I think that, I mean, that I call it, what I call it is the G20 factor. Do you remember in the G20? I mean, who did people want to meet? Berlusconi? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, George Brown? Uh, George Brown. Uh, Gordon Brown? I call him George Brown. <laughs> There's a slip. George Brown was a drunken Labour politician who slipped in the gutter 50 years ago, uh, which is not true of Gordon. You know, they wanted to meet Barack Obama. Why? I mean, it does send a message out, and I think this is the optimism that... Uh, you know, I, I, I want to convey, and this is why I want to say that this nine-month kind of silly season, you know, Barack is slipping, it's all over, bar the shouting, he's only going to be a one-term president. I'm, I'm far from convinced about that. I do think he represents something really quite fundamental, and it sends out a big message about America. You know, a black guy can be elected, and that's a huge message around the whole world. Um, good evening. Uh, at the beginning of your speech, you said uh, that you thought there were various other reasons for yeah. Barack Obama becoming the president, sure. and uh, you touch upon them. Yeah. Uh, please elaborate. And yeah, also very, very, very quickly. Firstly, you don't. The Republican Party was absolutely split from top to bottom. Uh, they didn't like their own presidential candidate because he was considered too liberal by the Republican base. That's why Sarah Palin became the vice presidential candidate. She wasn't considered to be too liberal. Um, and although there was an immediate bounce, what it sent out was a message that the party was split. And it's very difficult to win an election when your party's split. Secondly, Barack Obama and his supporters, this vast army of young supporters around America, were able to utilize new technologies than the internet. It's the first really major internet election. I was told they actually raised more money in Texas, even though they had no, mu no chance of winning Texas, simply by small donations from thousands, or well, maybe millions, of ordinary Texans who, who just wanted to give money to the campaign. And, and, and in that way, it was a new technological. It's also, uh, without going on at too great a length about it, I think it also says something about the changing socioeconomic and cultural and racial character of America. America is still a racial society, but damn it, so is this one. Um, and so is France, and so is Germany. And if you want to hear some really good old racism, go to other parts of the world. You know, don't just single out the United States for racism, for goodness sake. But something really, something really enormous has happened in America since the 60s. You know, when I visited Virginia, I made my thing about that. You couldn't come up with the kind of stuff which was said in Virginia in the 1960s. You couldn't close down public schools to keep blacks out of education. 
and then set up religious schools where only whites could go. You, did, you didn't have Birmingham, Alabama, and then you got the civil rights legislation. Um, and this, is, you know, this has changed America. And to be fair to the Republicans, and I haven't been very fair to them tonight, so I'll make this statement, you know, you know, George W. Bush, for all his faults, was not a racist. George W. Bush was not a racist. You know, he, he had a black guy as his Secretary of State, had Condoleezza Rice as his National Security Advisor. He promoted Mexican-Americans into senior positions in the administration. You know, this, this is a society which has changed. Now, it is true that this recent event you know, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Harvard, you know, has highlighted a problem. But the reason why it's been highlighted, in a way, is it's because it's, it, I wouldn't say it's the exception. I don't want to be kind of naive about racial politics in America, you know. If you live in New York, you'll have a 9% unemployment rate. If you're black, you're going to be 21% more likely to be unemployed. You know, large percentages of the American prison population will be ethnics, largely African, mainly African-Americans. Crime rates, health rates, all the kinds of indications of socioeconomic deprivation still fall very much on African-Americans in the United States. Let's not forget that. But massive progress has been made. And Barack Obama could not have been elected in the 1950s or the 1960s. So it did require that huge shift in politics and attitudes amongst many whites in America, as well as changes in the voting, voting registration in the US. Just please. You only get, you only get one chance. Sorry. Yeah. Hey, wake up. Hey, wake up. I hope this is a good question. Um, <laughs> after all yeah. that time, yeah. It's quite difficult, though. Uh, my question is, what do you assume about future U.S.-Iranian relations? <laughs> <laughs> calm down, calm down. <laughs> well, okay. The, the, look, there's three ways of thinking about this relationship in terms of the long term. One is... We, we know that all the op none of the options work. That's the problem in dealing in the U.S.-Iranian relationship. Sanctions don't work. Uh, financial sanctions may hurt some parts of the Iranian economy and elite. It does hurt them a bit. Smart sanctions have had an impact. But they're not going to bring the regime down. Even in this last election in, uh, in Iran, uh, both of the candidates, the main candidates, Musavi and Ahmadinejad, are in favor of an Iranian nuclear weapon, or at least getting close to it. They believe in American, uh, Iranian sovereignty. Um, so, look, there are no easy options here. And I, however, I put it to you like this. I think Bush, if pushed, if he had been in office, given the advisors around him and given his own inclinations, might have, if he had stayed in office, say, for another four years... <laughs> which is constitutionally impossible, might have employed military power. To no good effect, by the way, other than destabilizing the Middle East even further than it's already destabilized, not even hitting most of the Iranian nuclear capacity, which, in fact, we're not even sure they fully possess anyway, <laughs> just to kind of make it more complicated for you. I think Barack Obama doesn't really, and I think the Israelis are right on this. The Israelis have got this one right, and I'm glad he's right and they're wrong. Or put it this way, I think Israel's right. I don't think Barack Obama really feels his heart in any, any use of nuclear, in any kind of military strike against. I think he's made the calculation, it's too dangerous, it's too destabilizing after Iraq, it's not on. We're therefore led to where we are, where we are now, frankly, to an engagement process, to an engagement process with the regime we've got. If we had a perfect regime full of nice liberals, 
you know, Guardian newspaper readers who kind of thought the Holocaust actually did happen, you know, fine. But we don't. We've got Ahmadinejad, we've got, we got the Supreme Leader, uh, and all the rest. It is an Islamic Republic, after all. It has a very problematic relationship with the USA, which goes back to the fact that the Brits and the Americans got rid of an elected government in 1953. You know, what do we expect to happen? We support the Shah for 25 years, we get cheap oil, we sell all our lousy military equipment, and then we have, they have a revolution, and they don't like us, duh. You know, what do you expect? We've got to deal with the Iran and Iranian regime with respect, we've got to recognize their history, I think, however, in the end, and I'm a kind of revisionist on this, I think there is nothing that can stop Iran becoming a nuclear power. That's my kind of considered opinion. If they want it, they can get it. And, and that is problematic. On the other hand, there is such a thing called nuclear deterrence. <laughs> We've employed it through the Cold War for 50 years. Why won't it work against Iran? Of course it will. Pakistan has a nuclear weapon, India has a nuclear weapon, there's even a rumor Israel may have a nuclear weapon. <laughs> so deterrence works. What the best option might be, however, is get to the very point where Iran could say, look, in six months' time, we could go nuclear if we so chose, and then turn to the Americans and the EU and the International Atomic Authority and say, okay, we can now get it, now what's the terms of us not going the next six months? And that would be the best outcome. But that's going to involve engagement, diplomacy, a bit of pressure, but still working with the regime we have rather than the regime we'd love to have. Okay, time just for one more question. I think this, uh, so we, uh, yes, you pass. Um, uh, let me just remind you, there is, there is a reception afterwards and uh, we will be there to. There certainly is. <laughs> yes, please. The drink is entirely free. Uh, Professor Cox, I'm really curious to know who do you think will run for president of the United States? Uh, sorry, for president of the United States in 2012 for the Republican side. Um, um, Bart Simpson <laughs> and uh, Sarah Palin, uh, a kind of an unwin, you know, a complete uh, no-brainer ticket. Um, look, I mean, there's some very, there's still a lot of talent in the Republican Party. Uh, no question, but let's be honest. I mean, if, even if I were a Republican, which I'm not, um, the Republicans are in crisis. They're in a crisis. The problem for the Republicans is this: they move too, they've moved too far to the right. That's what's happened to the Republican Party. They've become too ideological. It's, it's, it, they, you know, it's the resistance against the '60s. They become a very Christian. But nothing against Christians. You want to be a Christian? Fine. Um, it's not a question of Christianity. It's Christian fundamentalists who have taken over the base of the party. They enforce a very hard ideological line on key issues like gay, gay marriages, homosexuality, family values in a, in a country where you know, families are now you know, increasingly single-parent families and all the rest of it. The Republican Party has moved far too far to the right, whereas the American public, I think, is actually moving towards what I call a more centrist position on most issues. Center-left, center-right, but not on the extremes of either. And I think that is a huge problem for the Republican Party. And I think they are in crisis on this one. Uh, Barack Obama has positioned himself brilliantly and I think, you know, unless something really atrocious happens between now and uh, 2012, this will be a two-term president. Right, he, on that he, optimistic note, thank there you we go. very much indeed. Thank you.